Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the wonderful Gospel of Mark. Our warmest thanks to Brady and Diana and Sean for leading us in worship. What a blessing to have Sean joining us as well. Beloved, everyone in here has a gift they have been given for the body. So find it and go for it. I pray that all had a wonderful Christmas season with family and friends. And what a wonderful service last Sunday morning as well. Looking at the incarnation, looking at Christmas in the Gospel of John. And of course, our Christmas Eve candlelight service where we were caught up in the song of Mary from Luke 1. It was a blessing to be sure. If you happen to have missed either one of those, they're both on Facebook and Sermon Audio. Be sure to not miss them. Well, every time the new year rolls around, it's, well, it's an exciting time, not only personally, but as a church. And we are excited for all that the Lord has in store for 2024. Women of Grace, of course, our ladies' study on Thursday nights begins again here in January with Men of Valor starting up right again after the women are finished as well. We're excited about a camping trip for the young men being planned for the spring, a time as well for the men of this church to pour into our youth, men training and mentoring younger men and boys. So be on the lookout for more details on that coming up and certainly much more as the year opens up to us and opportunities are presented. But still, beloved, the new year is our time to crystallize and to reflect upon our highest aim as a body of believers for 2024 and it is gloriously singular and it is divinely originated it won't be programs aplenty I can assure you it won't be bigger or fancier our highest aim as the blood-bought body of Christ is the worship of Jesus Christ and that worship through the singing of the word the reading of the word, the praying of the word, and of course the preaching of the word is the biblical mandate given to us in that very word. And while the singing and the reading and the praying and the preaching are, are merely our good and reasonable service unto the Lord and unto one another, how wonderful is the fruit that grows upon that tree. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. The friendships that form under the bond of the word. The relationships that are born and reborn. The peaceable fruit of righteousness that accompanies a church, a life, a home, a family. When Christ is her center. When they are the outworkings of that life. These are the results of a complete worship. And what beautiful promises accompany our obedience to remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in good works, to be faithful expository listeners, faithful readers, faithful givers. Stick in there and press in. Beloved, if you're hungry, he'll fill you. We saw that in Mary's song, didn't we? If you're thirsty... He will quench you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Beloved, I have no idea what 2024 is going to bring, but it doesn't really matter. If the world melts down around us, we know what will happen here Sunday morning. 
we will preach the next verse and the next and the next by God's grace. We will sing, read, pray, and preach the word. How's that for a New Year's resolution? 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 ring loudly in my ears as 2024 begins. Paul exhorts the church in Thessalonica, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it and he shall. No matter what the world brings, let us run the 2024 race with endurance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, one moment that certainly will occur in 2024, we will at long last complete the Gospel of Mark. I know some of you don't believe me as we have one verse up there today. Well, we left off before Christmas having completed the 14th chapter, of course, looking at Peter's denial of our Lord in the courtyard, that moment where Peter lived between faith in fear, taking place in that, in that common courtyard between Annas and Caiaphas' home, we watched as, well, a future spiritual giant, Peter, the one who had made such bold statements like that at Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We watch as he gets taken down by the questioning of a servant girl. And of course, as Jesus told us, Satan sought to sift Peter. He sought to attack Peter. He sought to bring him down. And most attacks are a surprise. They come from unexpected places. Peter never saw this little lady coming, no doubt. And was his spirit man built up? Was he prepared? Well, we demonstrated in our series a, a myriad of ways that Peter was not. In fact, he was a sitting duck. He hung by a thread. Scripture shows us that Peter's battle was lost before he ever walked in to that courtyard, and that's usually how it is with sin or succumbing to temptation, isn't it? The victory isn't gained or lost in the heat of the moment of temptation, but in layers beforehand, foundations that are laid during the times of rest and of ease when there is no battle with layers of choices and layers of heart attitudes that are either allowed to fester or that are being crucified and put down. Now, of course, this is April in Israel, 3 o'clock in the morning. And of course, the Gospel of John tells us that it was a cold night. As Peter was brought into the courtyard under escort and really under the word of another disciple who's not named, but we can assume it was the Apostle John, we really beheld a scene that rung out with so much truth and application for every believer. It was remarkable. And the first being exactly that, that Peter was a believer. That is one of our lenses that we read this failure through. Peter was a born-again believer. No less than Jesus himself affirmed Peter's salvation before this point. So that is immensely instructive for us. What, prom what are the promises to Peter? And to us as believers, when in the throes of temptation, when tempted to fear, could Peter have stopped after the first denial? Or the second? Of course. 
Even as Peter's denials picked up momentum and steam as sin tends to do, even then, no temptation has overcome you, Paul tells the Corinthians, except something common to mankind. And God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Meaning that Peter had a way of escape. Now are we talking about a physical escape. Is that the promise of scripture? Is that even what matters in eternity? Is the promised escape manifested in the saving of our skin? Or does the escape come from walking in obedience? Remember, beloved, we drove this home in the text. The moment we obey, we have escaped. Physically? Not necessarily. Does it mean we're going to get out of the situation that our sin has made? Probably not. But the instant we obey, the instant we choose faith over fear, the moment you conquer temptation, you are free. We've escaped as promised. The snare is the snare of the fowler, the snare of the devil. That is the only way, that is the only need that we have to truly escape. Think about it, beloved. How many of the reformers sat in cold, dark, damp jail cells for preaching the gospel, and yet they would be the first to tell you that they were free. They were free as a lark. Walls and chains don't define freedom. Even having to pay a consequence for sin doesn't define freedom. It is obedience and a clean conscience that allows us to come boldly before the Father at the throne of grace. That is freedom. That's freedom. Peter's denial drove home that obedience and faith instead of disobedience and fear would have set Peter free in a moment. Fear seeks to save the body. It wants to go around the consequence. Faith seeks to save the soul. Willing to walk through anything, but Christ go with me. How freeing is it for the Christian to know that in any moment of temptation, anytime, anywhere, freedom is always available and instantaneous. We have God's word on it. As that text closed, we know that Peter had a godly sorrow, that he wept bitterly. It is this type of sorrow, Scripture says, that leads to repentance. Not the kind of sorrow that Judas, for example, felt. He also felt great remorse, didn't he? But his sorrow was that which leads to death. There is a sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, that is according to the will of God that produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. On the surface, they can look remarkably similar to each other as well. But beloved, sprinkle in the refining ingredient of time. Give it time. And which variety it is will become known. Without a doubt, we would see the beauty in the ashes of Peter's betrayal. Not only that God knew everything Peter would ever do in his life, and he called him anyway. Never let go of that truth, saints. 
But Peter would go on to lead the entire church in Jerusalem, being a giant in the faith that we still are talking about today. And yet while Peter's denial has been going on outside in the courtyard, recall that another scene has been happening right inside the home of Caiaphas. Now, by way of reminder, as Peter was outside denying him, inside they, meaning members of the Sanhedrin, all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. We know that the sentence was fixed. The fix was in. They knew that they wanted Jesus killed. Even though every false witness that was drummed up and pre-planned couldn't even seem to piece together a coherent accusation. Now Today we'll be picking up where that scheming has left off. For the last two hours, really running between about 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., they've been making a mockery of Jesus with all manner of degrading activities. It is toward the conclusion of this illegal meeting at Caiaphas' house that our scene resumes. Had they captured a king? So with that, let us look to our text this morning, beloved. Mark 15, verse 1. Mark 15, verse 1. And early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and this whole Sanhedrin immediately held counsel and binding Jesus led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the preservation of this text. Lord, of all that could be held for us you have held this and given this to us Lord, that we might know you lord many needs have walked through this door this morning and you know each one and as always we ask that the arrow would find its mark with great precision but all this we pray in jesus name amen well the third novel series published in the well really a seven set series of the famous Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis was titled The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. All of my kids have mostly read all, all of those and watched the movies many times, probably could quote it. Some in here have likely read these beloved books, but the Dawn Treader was the ship of King Caspian X. He was high king of all Narnia. And on this adventure, he was accompanied by his ship's crew and, of course, Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace. The king had set out to seek and, if possible, to save seven missing lords. And they sought them far and wide, and one of their journeys took them to the Lone Islands. Now, Caspian was not only a high king of all Narnia, but he was also emperor of the Lone Islands. He was king over these islands. And when they arrived, the king's party decided to, to come ashore, not in pomp and circumstance with the, the flag and the crest of the king waving, but in a normal boat with no regalia, nothing to identify them. You see, it had been many years since the true authority of the king had been flexed in these parts, since the word of the king 
had echoed in the halls of its palaces. What the king and his party found there was horrifying. The islands had been overrun with the slave trade. And the governor that was left in charge of the islands claimed loyalty to the king on the surface. He claimed to serve the king. But his actions said otherwise. He was corrupt to the core, giving only lip service to the true king. But as they began to walk the lone islands wearing no crown, no robe, no royal armor, slave traders and evil men captured Prince King Caspian now. These men had no idea who they had in their possession. They had no idea that they had captured a king. They had no idea that the one they were mistreating and mocking and desiring to sell as a slave held their lives with just his word. These evil men had confused position and circumstance with that of true authority. So we'll leave King Caspian for now, being held by his captors, beaten and mistreated. But know that the story doesn't end there. So stay tuned for the finish. Today, wicked men have also captured a king. They've captured the king with no idea who it was that they were speaking to, with no idea whose face it was that they punched and spit upon. They believed they were in control. You know, I smiled as I, I noticed John MacArthur's commentary on these passages he didn't title this section Jesus Before Pilate, as we might think. He titled it Pilate Before Jesus. Indeed. Pilate Before Jesus reflects the truth of our scene, reminding us that we can't see the scene with our physical eyes. They don't show the reality. The unseen authority of Jesus Christ in our text is the greater truth. It is the higher reality, what Francis Schaeffer would call the real real. Then the perceived reality and authority of Pilate, an authority that he would not even possess had it not been given to him by the very one standing in front of him. So with that, beloved, let us dive into our verse, beginning with chapter 15 at long last, verse 1, verse 1. And early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole Sanhedrin immediately held council. Now, let us pause there briefly just to set our stage and well, remind us of where we are and how we got here. It says early in the morning. Now, at this point, we're talking about 5 a.m. or so. Now, why do we care about that? Why do we mention that? Because it speaks to the illegal nature of the mock trials up to this point. Remember that according to Jewish law, no trial could be held at night. That was illegal. All trials must be public. That didn't happen. The accused was entitled to counsel and to bring witnesses to defend themselves. That was never allowed. The entire Sanhedrin should have been present at the earlier meetings at 2 to 3 a.m. That didn't happen until now. And you certainly weren't allowed to hold a trial over Passover during feast time. That was disregarded. And beloved, even if a death sentence was handed down, you had to allow at least 24 hours to pass 
for new evidence to be brought to light. But of course, Jesus would be executed only four hours from this point. So all of the false witnesses brought before Jesus, who were proved to be false by their own words, what was their penalty? Their penalty of false witnesses by Jewish law should have been the penalty of whatever they testified falsely about. In this case, blasphemy. That's death. Oh, there should have been a death sentence handed out by Jewish law for this circus. But certainly not against the spotless Lamb of God. So now in our text, what do we see? It's 5 a.m. That means that the sun is barely, and I mean barely starting to just peak over the Mount of Olives. You see, it's technically daylight. And we need to make this whole circus a bit more legitimate because this whole 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. thing kind of needs to slide under the carpet because it was all wrong. It was all bad. The sun had just crested the mount. So get the whole Sanhedrin together. So notice in our text that the chief priests with the scribes and the elders the elders and the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin immediately held counsel, meaning quick. Let's make this legal. Now, of course, it still wasn't legal, but at least this gives us the veneer of it. We see that the whole Sanhedrin is gathered. Now, remember, the, the Sanhedrin consists of 70 men plus the high priest. So we're talking about 71 in total. And in this case, by Jewish law, they all must each vote publicly for a death sentence. There's no evidence that happened either, though it may have. We do know that they were certainly unanimous in their desire to see Jesus killed. Now, if we briefly rotate our gospel to the diamond of Luke, there's no need to turn there. But Luke gives us insight on what was said in front of the Sanhedrin, now at the temple. More on that movement in a second. So this is probably right around 5 to 5.15 a.m. Luke 22, 66 through 67. We're not going to dissect this response because we're preaching Mark, not Luke. But it is instructive for us to see. Luke records in verse 66, And as the day came, meaning the sun has just peeked over, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their Sanhedrin, meaning they have brought him to the actual temple, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Oh, boy. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you yourselves say that I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. There are mountains to climb there. <laughs> but suffice to say, Jesus did throw down the gauntlet when the entire Sanhedrin was finally gathered. He dropped Daniel 7 right in their laps. Unmistakable. Now, Jesus will not respond to lies. The time for that is, is long past. He won't open his mouth to defend himself. At this point, Jesus is only speaking truth. He's only going to respond to true statements. Now, remember, this is the third religious trial, as it were. 
A few messages back, we reviewed those specific movements that Jesus would have three religious trials and three secular trials. Religious, again, for our note takers out there, was Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. And our secular trials would be Pilate, Herod, Pilate. So keep that overview in mind because it's going to help you trace the movements. So after Annas and Caiaphas, early, early morning, remember those two were very close together in proximity, just separated by a courtyard, communal style living, right? The very courtyard that Peter denied him in. Now, as we mentioned here in verse one, that Jesus has now been escorted to the actual temple. This is where the full Sanhedrin would have been gathered to, to feign some legitimacy. This is where they immediately held counsel at the temple. Now, that would not have been a long distance. It's likely that the compound of the high priest is quite close to the temple. Now, looking back to our text, we see that, this, that following this rushed and illegal kangaroo court at the actual temple, with Luke giving us insight into what was said there, that they now bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, of course, they bind Jesus to give the impression of danger, right? Let's make Jesus look guilty. Let's intimate that he's an escape risk. This is all for optics. But here as we move on, we're introduced to a new place and a new person. The place is the praetorium, the person called Pontius Pilate. Now, can we pause briefly here for a moment, beloved? For perhaps those that may wonder, <laughs> or for our visitors, why look at all these types of things in such depth? Why dissect the who and the where? <laughs> Some say, who cares where it was? Who cares who Pilate was? I don't care how it happened. It happened. I mean, how does that help me with the challenges in my life? You know, I've got a real crisis going on at home. I'm going through a trial or a hurt. I'm struggling with my own walk or assurance of salvation. I've got hurt and struggles and addictions. And pastor, you're about to tell me about the layout of the praetorium. You bet we are. Let me encourage you. First, remember that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture and has chosen what has been preserved for us today, meaning it's all important. There are a thousand times more stories and events that are lost to history in what Jesus did than were preserved. The very end of John's gospel tells us that. So if we are in possession of it, if it's been preserved for us out of the thousands that were not kept, how important is every jot and every letter? Very. It was written for our instruction. So why teach these things? Why enumerate these details? How does the sequence of events or the historical nuances help you with the crisis or the trial that you're in today? How does it raise your affections for Christ? How does the layout of the praetorium renew joy in the heart of a weary saint? <laughs> there are many reasons, but I'll give you just two 
very quickly for today. Saints, by digging deeply into the movements and the building blocks of these stories, history, archaeology, and science are confirming this Bible. In a world that is assaulting the historicity, the authenticity, the reliability of Scripture, in a world that will tell you you're crazy to believe such fairy tales, you may know that history, archaeology, prophecy, science, all confirm the word that you hold in your hands. Now, while the praetorium or Pilate's historical presence may not speak to your crisis, it does speak to the truth of God's word. And you can trust your Bible. Now, when you sit down to read a portion of Scripture that does speak to the specific trial or hardship or doubt, we can know that what we are reading is the truth down to the last detail. You stand on a firm foundation. Whatever that promise is, you can hold on to it for dear life. Might that be of great help to you? That's reason one. Reason two, probably one of the most famous mathematicians of all time named Euclid. Euclid famously said, quote, Never ask what you will gain from knowledge. Knowledge is gain enough. Close quote. Well, that's great, Euclid. He gave us the what. But Scripture gives us the why. Why do I care about all these details? Well, beloved, we've taught this before and we will again and again. Philippians 1.9 tells us that to grow in our knowledge of God is to grow in our love of God. You cannot grow one without the other. They are tied at the hip. If you claim to love God, to love his word, but you know nothing about him, do you really love God and his word? No. You love a God of your own design and of your own creation. To know him more. To grow in knowledge of him and his word on all aspects. Every letter is to grow in your love for God and your love for his word. Now, might that be of help in your moment of crisis and in your everyday life? So, beloved, when we have messages where the text requires that we lay down a lot of factual or historical or, or informational data points. That is not only pouring cement into your foundation of trusting the word in your hand, but it is growing us in the knowledge of the Lord, which in turn grows our love for the Lord. What else could you possibly want for whatever life will throw at you? So back to our text. As we said, the text has now introduced a new place and a new person. The place is called the Praetorium. The person, Pontius Pilate. Now very quickly, the Praetorium is also known as the Antonia Fortress. It was actually built by Herod. And the towers of it stood 115 feet tall on the land side, 165 feet down the ravine side. 
And this fortress basically served as, well, Roman HQ for the Roman army in Jerusalem. Of course, it was most common for Roman governors and dignitaries to stay here during visits. Or, of course, certain times of year, like Passover, when people like Pilate would stay there to keep an eye on two million Jews who were very predisposed to insurrection. There, of course, a garrison, more than 600 troops within its walls. And the close proximity of its high towers to the, to the temple complex, it was really right up against it, essentially. And that enabled Roman guards to keep, to keep watch down on any disturbances that developed in the temple below. In fact, Herod even built underground passageways that allowed Roman detachments to enter the compound if riots broke out. So the Praetorium is also known in Scripture as the barracks in Acts 21 with Paul. It's also called the pavement, or Gabbatha, in John 19. We'll hear that word much more often as we get into chapter 15. So again, a very short walk from the meeting of the Sanhedrin to the temple to the praetorium. As the scene progresses, we'll have much to say about what will happen on the pavement, the mocking and the scourging. But for now, we will meet a new individual. Enter scene Pontius Pilate. We're going to introduce him well here because it has great bearing on the, well, the entire fabric of our telling. His position and his personality, everything about Pilate informs our scene and his interaction that he's going to have with the crowd, with Jesus. And that begins with his past. And Pilate was not a noble person by any stretch. It doesn't seem that he was particularly smart or devious. He was, however, very, very well connected. Now, having come from Spain originally, James P. Boyce, he tells us that, quote, he had joined the legions of Germanicus in the wars on the Rhine. And after peace had been secured, he went to Rome to make his fortune. There he met and he married Claudia Procula, the youngest daughter of Julia, who was the daughter of the emperor Augustus. So from the perspective of Pilate's future, this was a very wise move. Claudia had connections with the highest levels of Roman government. Now still, the actual family that Pilate married into was really a wreck. (laughs) Reputationally, morally, it was bad in every way. But Pilate, he was a political animal, even from the beginning. And through those political connections, Pilate, he applied for and he was awarded the procuratorship of Judea. That post he assumed in A.D. 26. Now, this was not a sought-after post. In fact, many didn't want it at all because it meant dealing with Jerusalem. It meant dealing with the Jews and the zealots. It was a a headache that, that really risked your own neck if riots broke out. Now, in later years, after Jesus' death, Pilate had a large number of religious pilgrims killed at Mount Gerizim. That's a very famous mount you'll read about in the Old Testament, about 30 miles from Jerusalem. These were mistaken for insurrectionists. There was a great outcry, and Pilate was deposed and sent to Rome to answer for it to Tiberius. Unfortunately, by the time Pilate actually got to Tiberius, He was dead, and Caligula had taken over. So we have no idea outside of tradition what happened to Pilate. But in case you're wondering, perhaps for your own knowledge and encouragement, or 
Or maybe as a little tidbit for your skeptical friend or family member. In 1961, Italian archaeologist Antonio Frova, he was working with his team at Caesarea Maritima. This is a beautiful area. I've been there. It's, it's right on the coast. You can visit the area today. It's overwhelming. It's there that you'll also see the remains of Herod's palace with, with actual tile still in place of the original floor where Paul would have stood before Felix. This was a palatial building that jutted out into the sea. It's, it's positively amazing. You can imagine what it would have looked like in its day. And it was during excavation here while turning over stones that the now famous Pilate stone was found. To date, this was the only non-scriptural evidence for his existence. And the stone read, To the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. Pontius Pilate was a real man. And if you be doubting Thomas, you may put your fingers in the carving of the stone. Get on an airplane. That stone was dedicated really as a flattery piece, trying to curry favor with Tiberius. Again, that's, that's our political animal Pilate at work. There's, there's Pilate's personality etched in stone for all to see, even today. And all that matters because it tells us who Pilate is. It tells us his inclinations and his instincts. Remember our encouragement about building trust in God's word, history, archaeology, science, and even prophecy. If we didn't know who Pilate was, we may not have recognized the literal prophetic fulfillment of Jesus back in Mark 10.33. With Jesus saying, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Check. And they will condemn him to death. Check. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. Check. That's Pilate. There it is. So now we know all about that. And the truth of that, we can be built up in that. Glory to God. So in our scene, we know that Pilate is, well, he's really the final court of appeal in Judea. He has the judgment seat in the praetorium. It was his to sit upon, his to execute justice. And it was just Pilate's sort of justice that was sought. See, while the Romans gave the Sanhedrin great leeway and great authority to, to prosecute and even enforce and even to, to judge something worthy of death, the Romans were the only ones who could wield the sword. Only the Romans could carry out an execution. And that is exactly what's being sought this morning. We are here for an execution, have no doubt. Now, an exchange happens before we can even get to our following verses next week that's worthy to examine. Mark 15, 2 jumps right to Pilate's questioning of Jesus, but much happened between that. They've brought Jesus bound. Where? Into the praetorium? No way. Now, wait a second. I thought you just said they brought Jesus to the praetorium. Yes and no. Turn with me in your Bibles very quickly this morning, beloved, to John 18. John 18, very quickly, let's look at this together. John 18 fills in some key details for us. So looking at John 18, beginning at verse 28. Now understand here that John 18, verses 28 through 23, 
those happen between Mark 15.1 and 15.2. So these verses we're about to read happen between Mark 15.1 and 15.2. So here's John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Is that a gas or what? We can't go in there. (laughs) That's Gentile territory. If a Gentile even touches me, I'll be defiled for Passover. Can't go in there. I wouldn't want to be defiled while I'm murdering the Son of God. Don't you love the workings of the legalist in their mind? The irony, the hypocrisy is off the charts at this point. My sandals cannot be defiled as I seek the death of God's own son. Now, when we see these religious leaders, when we, when we go back in the Gospels and we read Jesus' interactions with them, Jesus really torching them, boy, it makes crystal sense, doesn't it? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. John goes on in chapter 18, then at verse 29. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, because they wouldn't go into him, so he goes out to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. What a great answer. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves. And judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In order that the word of Jesus, which he spoke, would be fulfilled, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. Our stage is set. Pilate knows what they want. He knows what they want. As we move on next week to that actual interaction of Pilate and Jesus, it is fascinating. Pilate knows they want Jesus dead. Does Pilate have any idea who stands before him? Has Pilate any idea that he's caught a king? The king. There will certainly be something about this man that he will never forget. (laughs) I haven't forgotten that we left King Caspian back at the beginning in the custody of evil men with no idea that they've caught a king. And as promised, that's not the end of the story, but you'll have to wait for part two to find out. Don't you love a cliffhanger? Our stage is set to coin that phrase for Pilate to stand before Jesus. And what will the king say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, while we have had to lay down information and facts and, Lord, things that are not always the easiest to digest, Lord, we pray that it causes your word to come alive to us, that it inflames our heart toward the truth of your word. Lord, if there be anyone here today 
who does not know your word in that way, who does not know you in a saving way. Lord, we ask that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that they would hear the words, that they would hear the truth of your word, and that they would surrender. Lord, that is the call of the gospel, is one to surrender. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us as 2024 dawns. Lord, for all that comes ahead of us, Lord, you know. You've already been there. You've already seen it. And Lord, you've given us a mandate as a church. Lord, that we will serve you in every way, that we will preach the next verse to the glory of God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.